you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and Karen Finan will appear in that box in just a moment, hopefully. <laughs> Meantime, uh, we've got the dire warning from Boeing CEO that sent a shockwave through the entire airline industry, plus the Fed entering uncharted waters today, how you can trade this unprecedented move. And later, hungry for a deal, we'll tell you what sent shares of Grubhub soaring today. But we begin with a late-day sell-off, taking stocks down all three major averages, sliding hard into the close. The Dow down 457 points. S&P 500 down 2%. NASDAQ snapping a seven-day win streak. So what's the take on the market action? Guy Adami, made it in, like, under the wire. Your box slid in there, appeared, bam. There you are. Sweet. Hi, Melms. Hi, Guy. How are you? So we talked about books we read in college last night. This is going somewhere, by the way. And last night I mentioned 100 Years of Solitude. Mm. I had to read uh, The Moby Dick in college as well. You might recall Herman Melville. Remember that one? Yeah, of course. So it's about about 570 pages. And that's one of those things that somebody like me, you just sort of skim it. But every once in a while, you get to a page that seems important, so you bookmark it. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody like you has the highlighters. No, no, well, I, don't, I don't Today is one of the, the days books, you but... want to... Good. Sorry. Uh, okay, well, fair enough. Well, I, would, I, I defiled. But today's one of the days you want to bookmark, and it's for a number of reasons. I have no idea why the market reversed today, but the market reversed today. And look at three stocks in particular. Look at the move in Apple. Look where Apple traded up to. Look at the previous high, sort of mid to late Jan, early February, and then look at the reversal. Look at Facebook, very similar, and also look at Microsoft. Look where all three traded up to today, and look at how they reversed on pretty significant volume. I mention it because, look, tomorrow they could all go ratcheting higher, and we'll take that book that we, you know, that page that we bookmark, and we'll flip it back over. But they could also keep going the way they're going, and then we'll say, you know what, today was a meaningful day. I happen to think, for a number of reasons, today was a meaningful day, and I think it's one we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come. So I don't know why we reversed, but we reversed, and you know, here we are with the market. You know, the number of stocks, a handful of stocks took us higher. Well, those stocks all reversed today in a meaningful way. Steve Grasso, what's your take? So I think Moby Dick is a lot longer than 570 pages. I think it's over a thousand pages, but. Neither here nor there. Um, I do think the headline, if you look at when the market turned lower, it was around 310 or so uh, when it really fell precipitously. That headline was L.A. County stay at home looks to be extended through July. So to me, you had Fauci today talking about the risks of reopening too early. Then you have L.A. saying, hey, it's not going to be as easy as we thought. And a bunch of other states, I think, could uh, detour whatever comeback there is or reopening there is. I don't think it's going to be as easy as everyone thinks. And the market is starting to price in, maybe getting into the thick of the summer, 
before we actually reopen the economy. And that's what sold the market off today, in my opinion. I think the Moby Dick is probably more than 500 pages, but Guy probably read only 500 pages of it. But, Tim, that's, that seems like a smokescreen, though, to say, <laughs> to, you know, when the markets are up, markets are up on optimism about reopenings. And then when the markets are down, markets are selling off on, on skepticism about reopenings. I mean, you can't have it both ways. And I guess, you know, people are human and they, they think about things in different ways in different days. But at the same time, I mean, this is a t- this was a technology-driven sell-off here. Yeah, well, people think about different things when different topics are brought up. You say Moby Dick, I say great Led Zeppelin song. And, and, and ultimately, when I look at the market today, um, yes, I agree. L.A. County was sobering. Fauci talking about college kids really shouldn't be going back to school. The Fed said uh, they've done a lot and that the economy may have bottomed, but that we need more fiscal. So I think the Fed was actually uh, part of the ingredients today, too. But how about just, you know, the NASDAQ, if you look at the, the ETF, that's the NASDAQ 100, the triple Q, we talk about it all the time, that this morning, if you look at momentum indicators, uh, it had a 72 nine-day RSI, which means it's an overbought territory if you don't know what that means. Uh, if you look at the VIX, the VIX had fallen, volatility had fallen 40% in the previous five days to a place where, again, volatility was oversold. And say what you want about the Fed putting basically a, a, a boot on the throat of volatility by buying ETFs, which we'll talk about later in the show, um, I, I think you get to a place where some of these moves are, are overdone. Um, even in the big picture of a market that's trying to find a base and an economy that's trying to figure out what the pace of reopening is. So I, I'll just take today and say it's not a 500-page novel. It's a case where we really had gotten a little bit too far too fast and that the market is, doesn't really have big earnings to digest. And here we are. I feel like a buzzer should go off or bell should ring because Karen Feinerman has now joined the conversation. Bing, there she is, like magic, thanks to technology. There I am. Um, Karen, what'd you make of today's sell-off? <laughs> Um, well, I, I, I didn't hear fully what the other guys said. I do think we were sort of overdue, right? Obviously, we've had qu- quite a run. But there were a couple things to point to. And one is the big Treasury auction today. So right as that happened, and it was very well received, um, right at 1 o'clock, we started to see a sell-off. So I don't know if that was people getting out of other things to get into the Treasury auction. And then I think at about the same time, there was uh, some noise about China sanctions from our side, um, which didn't help. I know guys pointed to that a lot as a potential risk to the market. So I think those, those two things certainly didn't help. This talk of negative rates uh, doesn't help either. And so those kind of things, you mix them all together, you throw in a giant run, and it's not surprising that stocks would sell off. I think that... Um, it wouldn't surprise me to see the sell-off continue more, and still that would, that would be okay. It's really been quite a run. A smorgasbord of issues, Guy Adami, is the word that, I, that comes up to me. That, that there wasn't any one particular reason, sure. but given, given the run, particularly in the NASDAQ that we've had, that it was just due. Yeah, my point about the book, um, you know, pages notwithstanding, is you know, every, you know, most days are days you just sort of, you know, leaf through, not a big deal. And then certain days are important days. And again, I, I, there are a number of reasons why we reversed. I don't know. All the reasons that Steve, Karen and Tim mentioned are absolutely valid. The fact is we did and we did it at levels that are really important, especially for those three stocks. You know, you mentioned the word smorgasbord, by the way. The first thing I think of, of course, is a great Paul Lind in Charlotte's Web. I encourage you to Google it. And, you know, Tim mentioned Moby Dick. And, you know, 
I just want you to know that our crack staff, Mel, because I know you don't know this. <laughs> listen. Okay, that's enough before we get uh, a letter from lawyers here. <laughs> let's bring in our next guest uh, to get more on the sell-off. Let's bring Why, in John the lawyers, The lawyers don't like Moby Dick? <laughs> no, playing music that we're not supposed to. We're going to move on oh, here. <laughs> John Stolf is the chief investment strategist at Oppenheimer <laughs> Asset Management. John, great to have you with us. Hope you enjoyed that music. It's probably the last music sure. we'll ever play on this show. Um, what did you make of today's uh, tech sell-off in particular and just the action in the market today into the close? Well, I, I think, Melissa, from a, from a point of view of uh, literature, last week was probably great expectations. And today was Oliver Twist, you know, in, in terms of the darkness. Uh, I, I think we've got to figure tech was, was just waiting uh, for, for some kind of a trim uh, and, and a haircut, maybe even a shave. Got a little bit ahead of itself. We would have to think <laughs> that uh, technology remains a great place to be. Uh, for longer-term investors, probably this begins to present an opportunity for looking for babies that get tossed out with the bathwater if this goes on for a few days. Uh, but overall, we'd have to say it was, it was a change in sentiment that occurred fairly quickly because of all the things uh, the, the panel members all mentioned uh, ahead, whether it was coming from the Fed, uh, whether it was uh, coming from what nobody mentioned, Dr. Fauci or, or Gottlieb was on an ICE call today. What, the medicos are not saying this thing. They're saying it's a long way home from uh, from where we are right now, and, and that the openings around the country may be too early, and it could be a serious setback. And the market got nervous. How should we how should we think about opportunities in the market, John? Because it does sound like you're you're saying wait. I mean, this is definitely not you know the opportunity to get in at this point. But I mean, are you thinking in terms of valuations? Or are you just thinking on pure percentage moves? down 10%, that's a good time to get in? I mean, how, how are you thinking about what this market should be valued at? I, I've got to say from, from a, a point of valuation, of course, it, it, the market is, 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 valuation is fairly stretched. What, the forward multiple, somewhere between 22, 23 times. Uh, a lot of that is to be expected because you've got a, a, a situation where the market is, is, is a discount mechanism, is looking ahead from when we get beyond all of this stuff while analysts and uh, consensus analytics keeps cutting ahead of the uh, of, of, of the second quarter and likely even uh, uh, cutting ahead of the third quarter at this point. So with that happening, your multiple is going to expand. But I think it just got stretched last week. There was beginning to be a feeling like uh, it was you would have expected people to start passing out party hats. And yet the news at ground level, so to speak, mm-hmm. was not really telling you that it was it was a time to celebrate, but uh, more to take a little bit of caution. Tim, you got a question? Well, John, I, you know, I guess if you think about again, we'll do the Zeppelin metaphor here. Uh, the song before Moby Dick on Zeppelin 2 is Ram Milan. Uh, and it sounds to me like you think we have a dynamic here with at least mega cap Nasdaq stocks, which have been driving the rally um, that they just needed to take a breath and they will ramble on further down the road because they are defensive. Yeah, I think they do ramble on further down the road. And I think uh, today, one thing we saw very clearly is while the large caps sold off, boy, the smalls and the mids really took it hard today. And so I think the uh, the, the large caps, uh, the mega caps, the NASDAQ, I think have, have, have more to come uh, to the upside. But near term, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's a haircut, a trim and perhaps a shave. John, great to speak with you. 
Thanks, Thanks for your time. Great. John Stolfus of Oppenheimer. Ramble on. That's a song, right, Guy? Yeah. <laughs> yes, Mel, it is. I can sing it if you want. <laughs> no, thank you. What's your take? It actually has some Tolkien lyrics. If you're No, my take is exactly that. The market did get ahead of itself 100%, but I thought that for a while. So here we are again at this, you know, 2850, 2900 level in the S&P, that 50% retracement that, you know, bulls want to say is sort of a place we're going to leapfrog from. Bears, on the other hand, say we're going to roll over from. I'm in that we're going to roll over from camp. And again, I mentioned those three or four stocks because I think today's can be a really important day as we look at, you know, a few months ahead. We can look back to May 11th or 12th, whatever today is, and say that was a day where these big stocks that took us higher sort of the signal to take us back to the downside. You know, John was getting at this, but in terms of valuations, it's difficult because as, as long as the estimates are continue to come down, that, that dramatically changes how you look at the market. So, Grasso, you always give technical levels. I would think that in this day and age, technicals may be even more important than in the past. So I think Guy brings up an interesting point. We've been talking about this 27.92 level in the S&P cash. That is the 50% retracement. Just think about what that means uh, with uh, psychology. You've got half your money back. You saw everything fall off a cliff. You've got half your money back. Those names that really did the heavy pulling are sort of running into resistance. They didn't lose half their value. But if you're sitting here saying, I could have went broke on this sell-off, now I've got half my money back, it's a logical place to take some profits. But think about passive investing. Think about ETFs. Think about how many ETFs hold Apple, hold Microsoft. So all of these names, when people start diving into tech, those are the names that rally the most. So do I think we lift off from here? No, I think it's a good place to take a breather and see how the reopening process works out. But ultimately, the Microsofts and the Apples and the Amazons will lead us higher once and yet again. Karen, you think we're in a holding pattern for now? Uh, well, if holding is like a few percent more or less, then yeah, I do. Before, I think it was Tim who said earlier, we don't have earnings right now um, to look at. So it's sort of more macro things. Um, but I just come back to that enormous run. I mean, finally, we did see the VIX actually spiked five today. Um, I don't think it was a one-day thing. So I think the uh, holding, but down, down four or five, that wouldn't be shocking. Four right. or five percent wouldn't be shocking. Coming up, the comments that rock the airline industry today, what Boeing CEO sees for the troubled industry, and later the great bond bailout. What the Fed did today, that is history in the making, how our traders are playing this unprecedented move. Fast Money's back in two. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. Beyond apocalyptic, that's a dire warning today from Boeing CEO. Let's get right to Phil LeBeau, who's got all the details. Phil. 
Well, that was the interview that everybody said, well, he's on the Today Show. What's he going to say? Yeah, the industry's hurting, but we'll be back. Oh, no, he gave us a headline or two, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But we also got Boeing's orders and deliveries today. And this is the fourth straight month, Melissa, where the numbers were not good for Boeing. And this should not come as a surprise, given the fact that we've passed the one-year uh, mark of the grounding of the 737 MAX. So when you look at these numbers, here's what you had. April commercial plane orders, negative 209 plane. The max was most of that. Almost 207 or 207 of the 209 were the max. Commercial airplane orders year to date, negative 516. So when you look at the backlog right now, it comes out to just under 5,000 airplanes, 4,834 planes. Remember, early in 2018, it was about 5850. 5,900. That shows you how much the backlog has come down. Now to the comments from CEO Dave Calhoun. When he was asked point blank by Savannah Guthrie, what's his assessment of the airlines and what might happen? Here's the clip. Do you think there might be a major U.S. carrier that just has to go out of business? Yes, most likely. You know, something will happen when September comes around. Uh, Traffic levels will not be back to 100%. They won't even be back to 25%. Uh, maybe by the end of the year we approach 50. So there will definitely be adjustments that have to be made on the part of the airlines. That comment, when you combine it with really the general concern about the airline industry and how quickly it's burning through tens of millions of dollars of cash every day, that has pushed the airline stocks, most of them, Melissa, they're either at 52-week lows or pretty darn close. I mean, I'm talking within a few pennies of their 52-week lows, and that actually means they're multi-year lows for most of the carriers. By the way, we reached out to Boeing and said, did he really mean to say this, that an airline would go out of business? And they said, look, he was talking about the general industry overall, the uncertainty that is out there. And let's be clear, if an airline were to go into bankruptcy, it would not necessarily go away, as many people have, have taken that to mean. It could mean that it's strictly restructured, which is what has happened over the years with the airline industry. Right. But they may not be in line to be ordering new planes. So it's curious that the the Boeing CEO would come out and be so frank when it's actually um, predictive of Boeing's future order book. but, But, Melissa, I should point out, having seen these airlines over the years go through bankruptcies, it's not like they immediately say, that's it, we don't want any new planes. I mean, they sit there and they make a game plan in terms of what they're looking for. And while they may change their order book, Mm -hmm. they don't completely walk away from the idea of buying new aircraft. Okay. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago for us. Tim Seymour, I go to you. I mean, there are a lot of nuances in this. But what I thought of immediately when he said this, and I, I don't want to make any implications because this is a very serious business. We're talking about going out of business or anything like that and any company out there. But United Airlines had a debt offering last week that they had to pull. And it was reported that they had to jack that yield up to 11 percent, and there were still no takers for that. There was not enough demand for this particular offering, which is not a good sign for United and probably for the rest of the industry. It was a terrible sign on a day when, when, and actually in the last two weeks, we have an enormous amount of, of credit issuance. Uh, $75 billion will come this week. A lot of it's very well-established, high-grade. But uh, when you talk about the airline industry coming into COVID-19, if you looked at the balance sheets of the majors that were most at risk, it was absolutely American. Uh, and then United was there. I, I think JetBlue is someone we should be thinking about. But um, if you think about cash burn for the airlines, it's not just you know, OPEX and, and, and all the costs that we know. How about refunds? Uh, how about the case where a lot of these airlines are going to have to give back? And in fact, United's been in the news for 
for being a little stickier than others on that front. So um, I do think that this is a sobering message. Uh, I do think that cash burn going into 2021 has to be a different story. Otherwise, the status quo on cash burn using the metrics that most analysts are using uh, make sense exactly what Boeing said today. Yeah. And what is reopening, Karen? And, and you know, you got to wonder, is capacity in the pre-pandemic world going to be full capacity in the post-pandemic world? In other words, are airlines going to be as packed or because of social distancing and other measures, they're only going to be flying at, you know, 60 percent of capacity, which is the new 100 percent capacity? Right. I mean, I think it's a demand thing. Would there even be some demand for 60 percent capacity? But then also, how are the planes configured? I don't know if that's what you're getting at. Literally, how many people can you fit in a plane in a post-COVID-19 world versus what you could before? So, I mean, that, I, I think that United Airlines debt deal is interesting in that, I mean, think about if the government were not there with their multiple, you know, 20-some-odd billion dollars to the industry, we would have several major, major restructurings or bankruptcies, not necessarily going out of business. But I mean, I'm afraid of the industry as an investment. I really hope it thrives and survives, but I'm afraid of it as an investment. I wouldn't wouldn't be a buyer here. I mean, as somebody who likes to fly and travel, right? I mean, we all want the industry to survive and and hopefully we get to the point where we can fly again and fly at at reasonable prices. I mean, the other implication is inflationary prices, Grasso, in terms of it's a fixed cost to operate an airplane to fly from point A to point B. And if you're filling the airplane up a lot less, it's not profitable anymore. The math doesn't work. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. But if you look at this, I look at it as to where we came into this crisis and Delta and Southwest were the only ones who had an investment grade debt across all three agencies. So if you were looking for the most stable in an unstable environment, Mm -hmm. it would be those two airlines. And then you have to look at what what travel is going to come on quicker. Domestic travel is going to come on quicker than international. So you have to look at those uh, domestic leaning airlines uh, companies. There's a whole thing that you have to look at here. None of it is great. You have to look at what is the best in a very, very bad environment. Can you be pessimistic, Guy Dami, about the airline industry and not want to invest in it, but want to be an investor in Boeing? That's a great question. I think at a price, Boeing's investable, absolutely. I'm not shucking your question. I mean, forget about the move to $90 in Boeing. Boeing went up 100%, 100% in about two and a half, three weeks from 90 to 180. Nobody said a word. And now here we are at 125. So the short answer is there'll be a level to buy Boeing uh, as a trade and still be bearish on the airlines. I don't think we're there yet in Boeing. I think I think there's another 10 to 15 percent downside in Boeing. And to the rest of the panel's point, I mean, these airlines have, have really not bounced in a meaningful way off their lows at all. And the one that actually is is maintaining some of the gains is, oddly enough, United, which I think bottomed out around 17 and is trading 22 now. But look, I think I think airlines continue to go lower. And I think there's probably a 110 handle in the near future for B.A. Quick, Tim, are you still in Boeing? I am. I have a position. uh, I've cut uh, half of it and uh, I'm hanging in there. I think they're they're commercial defense, excuse me, their defense uh, business and defense aircraft is is a very strong business, uh, and the government will continue to be buying from them. If anything, they'll be buying more than they need to. So uh, Boeing, to me, is very different than investing in an airline. All right. 
Coming up, the bond buying bonanza, the Fed entering uncharted waters today, what they did and how it could have huge impact on your money. Plus, hashtag WFH forever. What Twitter just did, that could be the tip of the iceberg for the commercial real estate market. Fast Money is back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Fed making history today and for the first time ever began buying corporate debt ETFs. The unprecedented move driving an explosion in the corporate debt market, $910 billion. That's how much corporate debt has been issued this year alone, and that is up 92% from a year ago. And get this, according to a new survey by Bank of America, corporate bond investors are now the most bullish they have been since 2006. So with the Fed officially in the market, is it now the time to sell that debt guy. I'm not a bond person, as you know, and the short answer is probably no. I mean, if they're going to backstop things and as, as, as vibrant as the market seems to be, you probably got to hold on. But with that said, you know, you know where I stand on this. And I think it, it's, it's ridiculous that they're going down this avenue. And the next stop is probably going to be uh, individual equities at some point, which is really ridiculous. I'm a big believer in corporate Darwinism. Allow it to uh, manifest and let the chips fall where they may. And the Fed is just taking price discovery out of the equation. So as much as I'd like to say sell into the Fed, I mean, you know, the old adage, don't fight them, probably holds true in, uh, in corporate bonds as well. Are you still short HYG, Karen? Yeah, I'm short HYG. I'm short LQD, um, which are really sort of somewhat hedges against the banks, although they didn't didn't work out today. I mean, I, I think what the Fed has done is just absolutely brilliant just by saying we're going to do this in the future. They announced this in March. They didn't even get started until today. And yet this sort of instantaneous healing of the corporate bond market is really extraordinary. If you I mean, you talked about those issuances, those are gigantic numbers which also helps the banks. I mean, you have Citi and J.P. Morgan and uh, Bank America. I mean, their capital markets desks have not been this busy in years. So that's good for them. But I think it's a, it's a bit of a buy the rumor, sell the news in that we don't know exactly how they're going to be putting the money to work, right? We know it's up until September 30th of 2020, although it could be ex- extended. They're, the first phase is going to be their biggest phase, what they call the stabilization phase. But in my view, stabilization has already happened. Um, and we're not going to see, maybe once a week we might see an update on what they bought. Um, and I don't know that they really need to put it all to work. Uh, it, it's, it's successfully 
they've been successful in what they've tried to do, which is stabilize the credit market. So kudos to them. I don't know how they get out of it, but maybe they can just go slow for a while and kick the can down the road. Yeah. I don't know. Um, our, our next guest says the Fed should not be buying corporate debt. Let's bring in Jim Bianco, Bianco Research. Jim, uh, why not? I think that they are opening up a can of worms. And um, just a little nuance in the conversation before, the Fed started buying bond ETFs today. They haven't yet started buying corporate debt. That's still another ways away. They've got some operational issues they've got to work out. But they've also promised us that they will do it. There was as Karen said, in a massive announcement effect on it in late March when they made the announcement that all the debt markets turned around and opened up. It allowed a lot of companies to issue bonds in order to replace their uh, credit lines that they were drawing down on. But the Fed is not going to then walk away after the announcement. They're going to keep buying. But today was a watershed day and that they bought ETFs. Now, the big problem is I think that they've got twofold problem. One, how to get out of it is going to be a is going to be a big problem for them. I'm not even sure how they even end it at this point. I know September 30th is a date they're going to end it, but technically they need the Treasury's appro- approval to do that as well too. They need the Treasury's approval to change these programs in any way. Um, five weeks before the election, the Trump administration is going to say, "No, you don't have to keep supporting the markets anymore." So of course that's going to get get extended and then extended and extended. And so they're opening up they're may, They may have solved a short term problem in March and April that the markets were being dysfunctional. But as Warren Buffett said, there might be extreme long term costs to this as we go forward from here. Well, one long term cost, um, Jim, obviously could be, you know, in terms of short term solving the problem, you're, you're solving the short term liquidity problem. But as we get out of this pandemic, we might have businesses and consumer uh, behaviors that change fundamentally, and you may have a solvency issue on your hand, and all of a sudden the Fed is holding the bag there. I mean, is that what you mean by the, the problem is how does the Fed get out of this thing? Yeah. Well, I think that there's two problems that the Fed's going to have. First of all, it's the solvency issue. Now, the way the market is thinking about this, and let me use some of the examples like Six Flags or Carnival Cruise that has raised a lot of money is they've raised enough money through the debt market that they don't need to have any revenues till next summer. And then the argument is by the summer of 21, they should be restarted at some point and then they can pay off that debt. And the bondholders, knowing the Fed has got a backstop, which is a big thing, that's why you've got the most bullish since 2006. The over underlying theme there is, of course, I'm going to be bullish on the bond market. The Fed is behind this thing and making sure it's going to be together. So why wouldn't I buy it? So you buy Carnival Cruise, you buy Six Flags on the idea you can get them through to next summer and then they can restart. So if that, that's an assumption that we'll have to see whether or not that actually works. The second problem the Fed's going to have when you start getting into corporations is you have the potential of a restructuring. You have the potential of having to make a vote on how to run the business. They desperately don't want to do that, but they might be forced into those types of proxy battles or types of restructuring type of votes that need to be happening when you own less than investment grade junk on a bond, a company that needs restructuring. So they're going to have another issue with that as well, too. Tim, you got a question? Hey, Jim, really clear thoughts. Thank you. Uh, Are we not now Japan? And and ECB. I mean, the ECB in the summer of 2014 used the exact same backdrop. Uh, And by the way, we're going to negative rates. Uh, Fed fund futures are there. So what is different about the Fed than the BOJ and the ECB right now? 
The only big difference right now is one, you like you said, we are going to negative rates, uh, but the Fed has been insistent they don't want to do it. And Jay Powell's going to speak tomorrow, and supposedly he's going to say, we're not going to go to negative rates, and then you can punch out Fed fund futures on your screen, and you'll see they're going to price in negative rates. So they're supposedly not going to listen to him. So they say they <laughs> yeah. don't want to do it, but the Japanese were very much in favor of it. But I think the bigger thing we have to be careful of is after 2014 and especially 2016 when the Japanese ratcheted it up, liquidity in their bond market disappeared. It's 10% of what it used to be five years ago. There are whole days when government bonds go in the Japanese government bond market that don't trade once. If you nationalize a market, you take it over like that, you shove out all the private sector players, all the brokers and the dealers go away, and you have no more liquidity and it becomes a permanent fixture of the central bank or the government itself. And that's a dangerous place to be in the long term. Okay. The Japanese have found that out because they really can't do anything with their markets and with their economy with it. And I hope we don't get to that point as well. Jim, it's always great to speak with you. Thanks, Jim Thank Bianco, Bianco Research. Uh, Grasso, what are your thoughts here? So I respect Jim. I like his work. But as he just finished off, he hopes we don't get there yet. So I don't think we're there just yet. But what was the alternative? So in March, if we didn't hear the Fed make any of these statements, where would the market have have gone to? Now, I get it. People uh, you know, want to see the chips fall and lie where they may. But I think the Fed actually saved the equity market. And if you look at the HYG, it, it jumped 24 percent from that March low, but it's starting to roll over now. So I think people know the script. How do they play it from here? I think you have the Fed as the bond backstop for the foreseeable future. And I think we are in a holding pattern for many things for the next couple of months. But I don't think that uh, we are past the point of no return just yet. All right, coming up, if you open it, will they come? The two very different takes on the future of the commercial real estate industry and later, Hungry for a deal? We'll tell you what sent shares of Grubhub surging today. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's the worst of times and the not-so-worst of times in the commercial real estate market. It all comes down to whom you ask. Listen to what the WeWork CEO said earlier today on CNBC. We've paid our rent in over 80% of our locations in April and May. On the collection side, we've collected over 70% of our rents in the month of April. Um, and we are working with small, medium businesses uh, in deferrals, freezing of rents, and different aspects uh, with them. Karen's been tracking the commercial real estate market. Uh, Karen, you're hearing less rosy things from some players. That didn't actually sound that rosy to me either. But yeah, I mean, I was looking at, you know, the highest quality, like a Boston properties. And I think we have a chart of that. And if you look, it has bounced so little off the bottom. I mean, it's really been it's just basically really where the bottom is now. It, that's where it is, even though rates are lower. Normally, that's been really good for the space. But there's a couple giant macro issues that I don't know how they're going to get out of. So what? I mean, WeWork had been a giant buyer of real estate and probably moved prices up, but they're obviously out of that business now. But I think we may have talked about it. When Google had their earnings release a couple of weeks ago, they talked about real estate really being an expense that they're going to rethink. And they're obviously not the only one. And then I think the Twitter news today 
was actually really big, the idea that, uh, that some employees maybe will be able to work from home permanently. So that's, it's so much broader than just Twitter because Silicon Valley companies, they, you know, they all want to have the same benefits that everybody else has so they don't lose out on the engineering talent. So it wouldn't surprise me to see many other Silicon Valley companies offer that same thing. And you put all of that together, I mean, that's, that's in, with the pandemic, I mean, we're in a very different world for commercial real estate now. So I think, you know, a name like a Boston property survives, but there's really going to be some have-nots as well. I don't have any exposure in this space. Um, I, 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 there's some quality companies out there, but I, I just haven't been a buyer yet. Tim, I mean, it does sound like companies are going to look hard at what they can do remotely. If they can offshore, so to speak, some of the costs of a footprint to their employees, why wouldn't they? Tim? You know, technology is a wonderful thing most of the time until a <laughs> shot is frozen, such as Tim's. Um, so that's what I was encountering. I thought he was just ignoring my question, which sometimes he does. Uh, Guy, I'll pose the same question to you. I've got the question. <laughs> the, the commercial real estate, Karen brings, Karen brings up a fantastic point. I mean, all you need to do, you know, CBR is another name you want to look at, but BXP specifically bottomed out at 77, rallied to probably 90, and here we are, 78 bucks. I mean, these stocks are trading as if they want to make a new, and this is not just a 52-week low. These are multi-year lows you're talking about, and the ramifications are absolutely very broad. So, again, this is just one more element. As much as I'd like to sit here and say, once we get a vaccine, the world's going to be back to where we were, I just don't think it's that simple. I think a lot of things have fundamentally changed, and those comments out of Twitter, I think Jack Dorsey's comment speaks to exactly that. Grasso, you're nodding your head. Yeah, well, well, when you look at it, it's funny. When you talk to my friends that are in commercial real estate, they tell you that things are never going, are going to be better than ever once we get back because people are going to need twice the footprint for social distancing. So it depends on what prism you're looking through this. But I have a hard time believing that there's a bullish scenario that sets up in city centers and, and within the REITs and within commercial real estate because technology has made it so efficient. Would you have ever thought a year ago that we'd be able to film this show? Granted, Tim might freeze every once in a while, but we are able to do this from home. So there's many other companies that will continue that trend, many other employees that don't want to go back to an office, so I think it's a negative horizon that will continue to be a headwind for commercial real estate and, and retail real estate REITs as well. I mean, you guys don't know. I might have a button that freezes you on purpose. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Bye, guy. Well, Coming up. Cooking up a deal to take over talk. That gave Grub up a big boost today. Don't wave goodbye. And later, one options trade just made a $4 million bet on a biotech breakout. We got the details and come right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Grubhub surging today on news of a potential takeover by Uber. Deidre Bosa's got more on this story. Hey, Deidre. Hey, Melissa, that combo, an Uber-Grubhub combo would combine two of the biggest players in this space, and it would catapult Uber into the number one position ahead of the current number one, DoorDash. But our David Faber reporting that 
the two parties remain at odds over the price. Now, such a deal also raises a larger question about Uber's future. Would this be an offensive or a defensive move? Of course, its ride-sharing business has been crushed amid the pandemic, while Uber Eats has been a bright spot. This deal could make Uber more eats than rides. Now, its success as a food delivery company, though, that is far from guaranteed, and it could actually push Uber's profitability target further out. The Eats business, remember, loses hundreds of millions of dollars each quarter, and its growth has actually decelerated on a quarterly basis, even as the pandemic kept people at home toward the end of the first quarter. Eats gross bookings slowed, as you can see here, significantly from the previous quarter. Now, another question, Melissa, is regulatory scrutiny if such a deal does move forward. This afternoon, the House Antitrust Subcommittee Chair, Rep. Sicily, issued a statement calling Uber a notoriously predatory company and saying, quote, we cannot allow these corporations to monopolize food delivery, which hits on a whole other set of issues uh, for both these companies and this marketplace. Back to you. All right, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa, I mean, this deal would combine the two biggest players in the meal delivery space in the United States. Um, Karen, can you see how this makes sense? Um, I think that if you think about the market and, and the market before the pandemic and the market now during the pandemic, maybe that that total addressable market has actually increased because now maybe people are more willing to use some of these services than they were before. Right. I think it probably has. I mean, I understand why Uber wants to do it. It's a land grab in the space. But I do think that last point that Dieter brought up about uh, antitrust is real. I think that it's sort of a you know, it's a, you can imagine that that's sort of a hot button or a good political argument to make, right? That you really care about your constituents and them having some choice and pricing power. So I, I think this, if they do come to a deal, it will trade really wide because that is a legitimate risk. Grasso, your thoughts, I mean, especially for a company that has come under, uh, you know, regulatory scrutiny for, for the other part of its business, which is the ride sharing. Well, I think at the essence of it, first of all, let's start off with Grubhub had a 20 percent short interest. That's why it popped so aggressively on the news today. The secondary question is there's really no money and no pricing in food delivery right now. It's all promotional. So if this is the first step in it becoming a profitable business, then kudos, kudos to, uh, to, uh, to Uber. But as far as putting the two together, it makes a ton of sense. Grubhub was the number one player way back, and there was the original player. Uber has the technology, so I think the marriage makes a, a, a ton of sense. But where does this go as we move forward? So even if pricing comes back, do we move from food delivery to prepared meals delivered? I don't know where it goes, but I would say that uh, it, it, when they were first pricing the Uber IPO, they looked at Uber Eats as being one-sixth of the total pie. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it on a percentage basis, I think Uber's just trying to make something work at this point. So Uber, great company. I don't know if it translates to the two great companies making a greater company together. Or two companies that lose money, losing money together. I mean, Guy, the other way to look at this is, right. is, yeah. is you know, if Uber does aqua- make this acquisition, does that make you like the business more or less than, say, a Lyft, which is pure play? You, 
I, I'd still say you stay with Lyft. And to your point, in this case, two negatives, you know, math notwithstanding, I don't think make a positive. And, you know, you go back and look at Grubhub's quarter. I think they reported last week, I think May 6th. You know, they're, they're, they call them daily average grubs. The, the, in and of itself, that's somewhat disparaging. But you only had 1% year-over-year growth. So Grubhub better not be too cute here. Something's going to get done. I just don't think those two together make whatever comes out of it a more valuable entity. So in, in the game of would you rather. Mm. <laughs> Are you uh, <laughs> you're going to say Lyft? Guy, I lost you. All right. Did you freeze him? <laughs> I, I guess I hit the freeze button by accident. But I, for those watching at yeah. home, the guy would say lift. Coming up. <laughs> Biotech touching a fresh all-time high today before pulling back. But one options trader is betting on a big breakout ahead. We'll bring you that trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The IBB Biotech ETF surging to a brand new all-time high today before selling off into the close. And over in the options market, one investor just made a $4 million bet that biotech, the breakout, is just beginning. Uh, Mike has got the action. Mike. Yeah, so IBB traded about five times the average daily call volume today. And to understand what was going on, we actually need to look back to April 1st, when this trader bought 8,000 of the June 120 calls. Well, today they sold those for an $11 million profit and took the proceeds and then spent $4 million to buy 11,000 of the June 138 calls for about $4 million in premium. Obviously, the buyer, who was previously bullish and profited very handsomely from that position, has now made an even larger sized bet that this run in IBB could continue. And you take a look at the highest, the biggest constituents in IBB, and you can understand why that would be Gilead, Regeneron, Vertex. These are all names that have done exceptionally well lately. I got to go to Guy on this. Um, are you there, Guy, or have you hit the pause button on us? I think that he's hit the pause button on us. I mean, this is unbelievable. <laughs> Steve Grosso. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say about biotech these yeah, days? Yeah, so whenever, whenever, you try to, whenever you try to invest in this space, you want to go to the IBB because you know nothing about it. No one has an edge in any single stock. So to, to Mike's point, on the IBB, you get Amgen, you get Vertex, you get Gilead, you get Regeneron, and you get Biogen. So those names account for more than a third of the IBB. It's up 11% year to date. There is going to be more therapies, more vaccine news on the, on the horizon. So instead of trying to pick the one, we're not scientists, and even the scientists don't know. So I think you're better off buying the IBB and hoping that you're getting exposure to the names that will partake in whatever therapies that are moving forward. Guy, my feelings are hurt. Are you hitting the pause button on us? Why? What did I do? <laughs> I kept talking to no, you and you wouldn't no, respond. No, I didn't hit any pause button. <laughs> Quick thoughts on IBB. Because you see this, my IFB, and I could tell you what that stands for. I like IBB. I've liked it for a while. <laughs> it scares me that Amgen made a little bit of a double top. I think you stay with Big Cap Pharma, Melms. All right. For more options action, by the way, thanks, Mike Co. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, we get the final trade. trade, Tim. I will not put you on pause, Mel. The IBB, uh, as you talked about last block, we're talking about a five-year breakout in some of the best balance sheets in, in the major markets, IBB. Steve Grasso. 
specialty farmer at Bausch Health Company's BHC got pummeled. It looks like it's paused to build and move up about 10 to 15 percent quickly. Karen. Yes, I'm doing this, which is a gesture for doing nothing. All right, Guy. Blackstone BX. Thanks for watching Fastia tomorrow. Jim Cramer starts right now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.